Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. I want to teach you this morning from God's Word. Uh, John wrote this incredible letter. It was a circular letter. We call it the book of Revelations. A lot of people are afraid of Revelations. They kind of, they don't want to go there. It freaks them out. But Revelations is an incredible manual for warfare and worship. You'll learn about those. There's so many great worship passages in the book of Revelation, warfare passages. And so it, it's an incredible book. And it was a circular letter that meant to go to seven different churches. And he addresses the churches by name in, in Revelation chapter two and Revelation chapter three. And we are looking at those churches, learning lessons for us as a church and a people. What can we learn from this? How can we grow from this? And so we're gonna learn today from a church called Pergamos. Now the first week we learned about Ephesus. That was a church that left its first love. They had lost that love and feeling, so to speak. And so how do we get that back? What happens when we lose our first love? How do we find it? How how do we get it back? And uh, just a, uh, Pastor Andrew preached that morning, wonderful message. And then last week we looked at the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was a church that was being persecuted, being crushed. And yet the more the enemy tried to crush that church, the more the fragrant, fragrant offering went up to God because to, to crush myrrh is when all the sweet aroma comes up. And even though they were being crushed, they were an incredible testimony to the keeping power and grace of Almighty God. Today we're going to look at church number three. It's the church of Pergamos. And they, uh, they, 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 they had some great things going on, but they had some bad things going on. So it's going to be very direct this morning. Stand together. Look, if you would, at Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 12. And while you're turning there, let me remind you, our Acts class will begin again. We took a break for July the 4th week, but we will have it right here on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. If you're interested in learning more about the book of Acts, Come and join us. Let's read about this church. It says, To the angel of the church of Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, in every letter, Jesus addresses himself with a description. The description always goes along with the nature of the church and what that church needed. They needed a double-edged sword, and we'll see why in just a moment. I know where you live where Satan has his throne. This is where the seat of Satan was. And yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So he's drawn attention to the fact that this is a very wicked, evil city. It is a seat of principalities and powers and rulers and dominions. It's a bad place. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have the people there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him who rises above, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him 
who receives it. Let us pray. Father, we love you so much. You are an awesome, incredible God. What a joy to come in and worship you this morning. Now I pray, God, you'll open up the word in a new, fresh, living way. I pray you'll help me deliver it, God, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. We love you. We praise you. Teach us this morning what we need to hear. May we hear what the Spirit would say to the church today. We ask it in your mighty name. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Pergamus is a, uh, a city that was located on the Turkey's, the coast of what we now know as Turkey. It was located on a hill uh, overlooking the Aegean Sea. Very prominent city. It would rival Alexandria, Ephesus, some of the other major cities of that day in terms of commerce, wealth, trade, all those kinds of things. So it was a major, major area in this part of Asia. It was also a city that was steeped in idolatry. Like all the ancient cities, they had their temples, they had their gods they worshipped and served and followed. But, but this is unique because one of the, attached to this, uh, uh, the temple there was also probably the first medical clinic. And uh, they say the birth of modern medicine came out of this. They worshipped the god Asclepolis, and, uh, and that was the god of medicine. And uh, it was interesting that if you wanted to be healed, you could go up to this temple, offer your sacrifice, and then if you would lay down on the temple floor, there were all kinds of snakes crawling around. And if a snake came along beside you and crawled along you and touched you, they believed that that was the God of Asclepius coming down to you and would bring healing to your body. I want to tell you, I would have to be very, very sick before I laid in the midst of a bunch of snakes. I, I, and I'm sure it backfired many times, and most of them probably just got worse. Uh, it it, it kind of, this whole image of the snake, uh, you know, in our in nurses and doctors and hospitals, they got the snake wrapped around the staff. That was the, became the symbol for modern medicine today. It all goes back to the city of Pergamos. And right there, they worship the snake god. So it's a place where the power of Satan seemed particularly strong. He said, this is where Satan lives at the end of one verse. And at the beginning of that verse, he says, this is the place where Satan has his seat or his throne. It is where the throne of Satan can be found or can be located. It was an atmosphere filled with demonic activity, uh, idol worship. It was very pagan. And it just, have you ever been, it just kind of one of those places where you felt the oppressive presence of demonic activity. That's where Satan's at. That's where the snakes are at. This is, this is a bad, bad place. Interesting thing about this seat of Satan. There is actually a place in Germany today where they have what they call the seat of Satan. In 1901, Germany was excavating. Some German archaeologists were excavating the area of Pergamos, the ancient city, and they found remnants of the old, what they believed was the altar to Zeus. And what they would do is they would go up and they would offer their sacrifice to Zeus and uh, Asclepius, and they would offer their sacrifices, and they had this. And, and many b scholars believe that when he talks about the seat of Satan or the throne where Satan reigns or dwells from, he's talking about this altar that was erected to the god Zeus. So these Germans go over and they decide to reconstruct it in the city in Germany. And so they went back and they developed what's now known as the Pergamum Museum and they brought uh, many of the stones over piece by piece and they erected it right there in Germany and it's open today and in 1934 they opened up, or 1930, they opened up the Pergamum Museum to the public and people could come by and see that ancient museum. 
It's interesting, though, that Albert Speer, who was the architect of the Nazi party and uh, the chancellor we know was Adolf Hitler, he tells his architect, I want you to reconstruct this in Nuremberg. And so they rebuilt a replica of what is now known as the Pergamon Altar. And it was from there that Adolf Hitler would give his powerful speeches. And the masses would come out, and they had 150 lights going up in the air, and they would light the columns, and you could see them from a mile away. And and you've heard some of the speeches that Hitler would give, very charismatic, and thousands would pour into these fields. And the backdrop was a reconstruction of that altar, and he would come down almost like the Messiah and begin to make his speeches. And and it was at the Nuremberg rallies in September 15th, 1935, just the kind of the, the birth and growth of the Nazi party. He says there, the law for the protection of German blood and German honor was intended to begin the marginalization process of the Jewish people. And so they had what they call the pure race, the pure race doctrine. The Germans are the only pure race, the Aryan, blonde, blue-eyed, all this kind of stereotypical thing, and that Jews were beginning to be marginalized, and it was a later speech, he used the term, the final solution. We know that that would lead to the Holocaust, and six million Jews would be destroyed. Right there, all initiated at the seat of Satan. Evil, evil, evil. The word holocaust simply means a whole burnt animal sacrifice. And so when they would come and they were offered their sacrifices up to Zeus, uh, that was their whole burnt offering. And so the whole burnt offering for Nazi Germany was six million Jews. Wow. Seed of Satan. You can go see it today over in Germany right now. And that came from Pergamos, or parts of it came from Pergamum. Some people deny the reality of the spirit world. We talk about demonic powers and demonic force, and they say, that's, that's, that's just old wives' tale. really doesn't exist. It's all a myth. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say about it, and it's his word that counts. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, it's not each other. We're not the enemy, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so you see this whole kind of structured force of the enemy, demonic power, demonic activity. He calls them principalities, powers, authorities, ranking demons. It is all a part of the enemy of Satan or the legion of Satan. Very, very real. And, he, and so when he writes his church at Pergamos, he says, this is, this is Satan's headquarters. This is where he sits. This is where he rules out of today. But I want you to look at verse number 13. He goes on to say, but I know where you live. I know where the church is. And God has you strategically placed right in the middle of the most demonic activity to be a light to that dark world. I know where you're at today. You may think your work's the most evil place on the face of the earth. You may think you work, work around all these workers who use foul language and tell the filthy stories and, and, and they're anti-God and, they're, and they're all, their whole lifestyle is all about partying and you, you just think it's the most evil place you could possibly be. But the Lord would say to you today, I know where you live. I see where you're at. I can use you even in the seat of Satan. Don't be afraid. Wow, what an incredible, incredible promise from the word of God. He says there are some in the church who have kept the faith and remained strong. They believed, they trusted in God. He said in this city it's believed the very first 
martyr in Asia was a man by the name of Antipas. Antipas would not bow down to Caesar. He would not say that Caesar is Lord. And as a result, those who were in that medical school took him out and they put him in a, a, a brass uh, bronze, uh, brass pot, uh, or excuse me, a copper pot, and they lit a fire underneath it. And the fire, they literally burned him alive as they lit that fire and that copper got hot and he was just, just burned alive because he refused to say that Caesar is Lord, refused to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm the one who comes to you. I have in my mouth a sharp two-edged sword. Now, when you think about a two-edged sword, you think about a, uh, they had the Roman swords. They were scapulas. They were 18 inches in length, and each side of the sword was sharpened, uh, and so it literally cut both ways. You could swing it and kill opponent both ways. And we know the Word of God is like that. If you believe on the Word and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll bring redemption and life and freedom from sin and victory in your life. But if you denounce the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ, if you refuse to receive him, it also cuts the other way and can bring judgment and condemnation. The choice is yours. So when he's going to bring a very strong message to this church, he says, I'm the one, out of my mouth comes a two-edged sword. And he'll refer to it a little bit later also in this same letter that he writes to the church. So let's look at it. We've got a choice to make. Which direction are we going to take? We're going to remain faithful? Or are we going to follow the doctrine of Balaam? And I'll tell you what that is in a minute in the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. First of all, let's look at that faithful remnant that he has. And let me read it to you again in verse number 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. Isn't that a great commendation? Even in the midst of the most satanic activity, you remain true. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, there are two things they're commended for. Once they held, he says, first of all, you held to my name. My name. When you think about holding to the name of Jesus, you are thinking about holding to all that Jesus Christ is. So as believers, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he died for my sins, and I do believe he rose again on the third day. I believe he was truly the son of Almighty God, and he was fully God, and all things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He is the almighty, all-powerful, eternally existent God. That is Jesus Christ. He says, there's a church that held to my name. There was a belief called Gnosticism that was beginning to spread around the early Roman Empire, the early church, and, and they believed that, that God created Jesus Christ, that, that he was not fully God in any way. It has kind of been rebirthed in a group now called the Jehovah's Witness, and they will tell you that Jesus Christ is not fully divine. He was made by God, and then Jesus made everything else after that, but he is lesser than God the Father. That is not true, and that is not biblical today. It is not founded on the Word of God. It says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the same was in the beginning by God, and all things were made by God. He is the divine Logos. He is the divine Son of God. He is fully divine. And so there are those in Pergamum who would not submit themselves to the Gnostic teachings. They said, Jesus Christ is Lord, he is God, and there is none other. Second thing he says about them is they've kept the faith. They've kept the faith. 
I like that description. They kept the faith. Let me read Galatians 2.20 to you. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith. Everybody say that word. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now listen to me. We live by faith. Not only is my belief system centered around the Lord Jesus Christ, that I believe in the power of his name and I hold to his name, but every day I continue my walk with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me. You are saved by faith, but you also are kept by faith, and you walk by faith, and every day we live our life out by faith in the Son of God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean the moment you're saved, all of a sudden you think you're going to keep yourself saved. You are not going to do it. You don't walk in your own strength, in your own might, in your own power. We walk by faith. We walk by faith in the Son of God. Colossians 2 and verse 6, and so then just as you receive Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. You can try to make yourself better. You can try all the self-help things you want to do in this life, but I want to tell you, it's every day keeping my eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, every day following him and trusting in him and putting my total and complete faith in Jesus Christ. Pergamus held to his name and they kept his faith. They, they, they would be, there's so much persecution. If you didn't worship Caesar, they could kill you. We saw that with Antipas. You know, we, we, we'd say today, you know, pastor, listen, I would never deny Jesus Christ. I would never deny my Lord. I'm going to stand for him no matter what comes my way. And we, and we say that very easily, probably because no one here is being threatened with death right now. It's actually very easy to say that. But I wonder how many times we deny the Lord with our own actions, our own words. And we betray the Lord and we get sucked in so easily. We want to be accepted by our friends, and we want to blend in with this crowd for our ego's sake, and we want to work with this group for our whatever reason it might be out there, and we kind of just blend in. In some ways, you are denying the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can jump on Peter in the New Testament for denying the Lord three times in the garden outside when Jesus Christ is being beaten, but you know, sometimes we just deny the Lord with our silence. We never say a word. And God keeps bringing people across our path who need to know the Lord, who need to know about his grace. And, and, and they begin to enter into that conversation and they tell their dirty jokes and their dirty stories and they say their bad words and they act a certain way and they do a certain thing. And, and, they, and, and instead of letting our light shine or instead of turning the conversation to the Lord in some way, shape, or form, we just kind of blend in and we do this chameleon thing and we look really good on Sunday mornings and we come to church and look great and then we go out there and we act just like everybody else, and we have the same anger and the same bad motives and the same bad thoughts, and we battle this all along the way, and we wind up compromising with the world. The church of Pergamos is a church of compromise. Now, not all. They had a faithful remnant. They had those who held to his name, those who would not deny the faith. But there's a whole group in Pergamos who were guilty of compromising. You see, if Satan doesn't get you like a roaring lion, he will come in like a deceiving serpent, and he will try to deceive you into compromise. And we're going to see this in just a moment. He tried to defeat the church at Smyrna by persecution. 
All persecution does is make the church stronger because they cry out to the Lord and they run into his arms and God helps them and brings them through and strengthens their faith. And so the, per- the persecution, the trials and the tests, they often develop patience and patience has its perfect work and we become more like Jesus. And we talked about that last week. But if he can't get you that way, he tries to get you like a serpent. Hath God really said... And he crawls into the garden of our mind and he tries to tempt us to compromise as he did in the garden. So my second point is simply this, the danger of compromise. They compromised in two ways. Let me give them to you. Uh, Verse 14 through 16. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword. There you see that sword again. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, what is the doctrine of Balaam? Uh, You've got to go back to Numbers chapter 22 to Numbers chapter 25. The doctrine of Balaam was actually immorality. It was fornication, and more than that, it was spiritual immorality. So let me explain and tell you how that worked. There was a, the, the tribe of Israel is traveling through the wilderness, and they are trying to get into the promised land. But because of their sin, because of the bad report of 10 of the 12 spies, they come back and say, they're giants in the land, we can't take it. And so because of their unbelief, they are forced by God to wander for 40 years in the wilderness for God says, okay, a new generation has grown up. Uh, we're gonna part, you can part the Jordan, go in and take the land. While they are wandering around, they're wandering around the region of Moab. Moab is on the other side of the Jordan River in the Middle East. And so they are among the Moabites. The Moabite king is a guy by the name of Balak. B-A-L-A-K. And he is afraid. Israel's this massive nation of two million plus people and they're right there in his territory and he doesn't have the military might or strength to take them down. So what does he do? He contacts the local soothsayer, diviner, heathen, pagan, fortune teller, uh, witch, whatever you want to call him, a guy by the name of Balaam. Now, it's interesting, Balaam used something of the God of Israel because he'll refer to that in his, in his words. But they bring him back, and he, a donkey tries to stop him, and he keeps going, and you know the whole story. He gets there, and uh, Balak says, okay, I want you to prophesy and curse the nation of Israel. Curse them so God will wipe them out, and we can win, okay? And, and, and so Balak, uh, Balaam, every time he starts to curse the nation of Israel, he says he's going to say something really bad, and then all of a sudden blessings come out. Right? You remember the story? Every time he opened his mouth, he starts blessing Israel. Oh, God, bless Israel. They're a great nation. They're mighty. And, and Balak's going nuts. Wait a minute. I paid you to curse these guys, and all you can do is bless these guys. Let me tell you something. There's a very, very important lesson here. You can't curse what God has already blessed. And God had made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless thee, I will make you a great nation from your offspring, from your seed, all the nations of the earth is going to be blessed. Now we know in Israel, God's plan for Israel is through this nation that he has protected and raised up 
that the Messiah is going to come. And Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, is going to be born. And because he came to this earth, all the nations of the earth can be blessed. We can know the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving grace and join him in heaven for all eternity. That master plan of God could not be thwarted by any other soothsayer coming along and cursing them. In fact, it says, I think in the Proverbs, that no curse shall light upon thee. So listen, if you got somebody with a Ouija a, a doll pointing pins in it, don't worry about it. That's, that's nonsense. It won't light on you. It can't rest on you because you are in the hands of Almighty God. You are blessed by God, and no one can curse what God has blessed. So he fails in his attempt. And so... And by the way, Deuteronomy 28 and, and other chapters and numbers talk about you can choose whether to follow God's blessing or God's cursing. And in many ways, Israel got away from God. He says, if you follow idols, if you serve them, if you bow down to them, then I will curse you. And we know that later the whole nation of Israel is dispersed because of their idolatry and they're taken into captivity. He says, if you bless me, if you obey me, if you follow my word, then I will bless you and I will make you a fruitful nation. But that is something you do to yourself it's not something anybody else can do to you you understand this you get the difference there and so Balak's frustrated and Balaam's you know about to get fired and so he comes up with this plan he says I know what we'll do if we can't beat them let's join them he says let's send all the Moabite women into the camp let them walk around and wiggle a little bit do their thing and the, the, the Israelite men, they're tired of the Jewish women, and so they start looking at these Moabite women, and the Bible says they begin to intermarry and enter into fornication with the other Moabite women. Now, you know what begins to happen after that. Because they begin to follow the Moabite women, uh, they also begin to follow the gods of the Moabite women, uh, and so they are compromising in every single level of their journey out there in Moab, waiting to cross into the promised land. And God has to come down and bring judgment upon them and many are destroyed right there in Moab because of their intermarriage compromise with those sinful ladies idol worshiping pagan sinful women now that that is the basically a story of Balaam in a nutshell now lest you think that's uh, Old Testament turn to 2nd Corinthians chapter 6. You know I'd have something for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse number 14. Wow. Do not. Everybody say do not. Be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Now listen to me. There, there, there's a warning that maybe you don't hear a lot or know a lot. But the Bible says, don't marry an unbeliever. It's just that simple. It's that clear. 
In fact, you can extend this to business partnership and other relationships, and they will always come back to haunt you and bite you. A couple of reasons that that drag of unrighteousness will pull your spirit down. But not only that, when you are yoked together with an unbeliever, that there it. The Bible is all about godly seed, and you jeopardize the potential for godly seed by having a mixed marriage of a believer and an unbeliever. It's not to say God still can't save them and use them, but often the, parent, the kids will follow one parent or the other in their belief system, and so the next generation is being affected. Not only that, he says, you are one flesh. Let me tell you something today. Man is made up of body, soul, and spirit. When I come into a oneness relationship with my wife, somebody else, I come into that relationship, I can be one physically, I can even be one on a soulish level, but my spirit can never be one because the Bible said their spirit is dead and trespasses in sin, but my spirit has been made alive so there can be no spiritual oneness, which I believe is the highest unity you can have is unity through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have that in an unequally yoked relationship. Now, let me add this footnote very clearly because many of you in here are already married to unbelievers. Paul's also very clear. Stay there. The next chapter. Don't leave them. Don't divorce them. For who knows that through your faith they might be saved. And so as it was in the church at Corinth, uh, that was an idol-worshiping church as well, a very pagan city, a very idolatrous city. Uh, There were many people who were getting saved, but often in those cases, after the apostle Paul went there, only one of the two would get saved, the other may not. He says, if that's the case, you stay with that unbelieving spouse. You pray for them. You live the life in front of them. You witness to them. You, you, just, you just stand up for Jesus Christ, even in the midst of that unequal yoke married. But if you're not married, he's also very clear, do not marry an unbeliever. So I don't care how good he looks, how much money he makes, how nice he is. If you don't know Jesus, later, out of here. And don't come to me and ask me to marry you guys. I'm not going to do it. If you're not going to do it under God, why go through the hypocrisy of getting a preacher to marry you and bless a union that God has said is wrong? Get a witness. Does anybody anybody believe this today? It's interesting that the name Pergamos literally meant married. And so the church... And listen to me, it goes beyond just marriage. The church is the spiritual bride of Christ. In other words, we're his bride. He's the groom. He's coming back to take us back. He says he goes away to prepare a place for us that where I am, there you may be also. You have this whole picture of the marriage feast. And when he comes back and takes us home, we enter into the marriage supper of the lamb. And you've got all this imagery of our union and marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, are married to him. So, so what happens is, though, when we compromise to protect our reputation, to fit in with the crowd, to, to join in with somebody else in our activities, we are literally committing spiritual adultery against the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's my groom, he's my life, but I'm checking out on him with somebody else, something else, 
someone else is pulling me away and down. And I'm compromising, compromising my beliefs. Make no mistake, the world and Christ are enemies. You can't love the world and love Jesus. I'm not talking about the lost sinful people. We we love lost sinful people. But you can't love this world's philosophy, this world's lifestyle, this world's ideology, which is anti-God, and still love Jesus at the same time. Now, if you don't believe me, listen to James 4.4. You adulterous people. Now, notice he calls them adulterous people. It wasn't because they were committing spiritual, uh, physical adultery. It's because they were stepping out on God. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So he says, when you decide to play it both ways, I'm going to look really good on Sunday morning with my church crowd, and then I'm going to fit right in and party like an animal on Friday night, and I'm going to hang out with my buddies all week long, and I'm going to talk and say and do just what I want to do. You are, you are compromising, and you are becoming a friend of this world. And then James says, don't you know, you can't have it both ways. Are you going to commit to Christ or not? Are you going to follow Jesus or not? Are you going to walk in faith and hold to his name? Or are you going to deny him in some way? Mm. physical fornication was a real reality in Israel's day with Balaam and Balak was also a reality in the church of Pergamos and I will tell you our world we live in is a very sexually charged world pornography is rampant Uh, the statistics are uh, 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 incredible of how many are involved in pornography. Over 50% of men who call themselves Christians are, are into pornography at least twice a week. Now don't look around. Don't look at your neighbor and say, is it you? Is it you? Which, who is it? You're committing mental adultery against your wife, first of all, by looking at that image and focusing on an object that becomes the object of your affection that should go to your wife or your husband, ladies. But not only that, you're committing spiritual adultery against God, who now owns your eyes. Adultery, fornication is rampant. Uh, man, I, it's still in God's word. And I, I, I just, I, I gotta be honest and open with you today. You can't move in with your boyfriend or girlfriend. God says no. And we dress it up and we say, we're thinking about it. We're going to get married one day. We really love each other. We're going to try this thing out. No. It's called fornication. Pornia is the Greek language for it. And you can't move in with your boyfriend or girlfriend. And listen, I, maybe in this congregation, we got people that are living together. Listen, the good news is you can repent and you can separate and you can pray and get God's will on the matter, but you can't move in. You can't sleep together. You can't have sex in the back seat of the car with your boyfriend or girlfriend on your date. You can't do it. God says no. And, and the, the, the thing is, we get so lulled to sleep in our society and we think everybody else is doing it and it becomes the norm. It is not the norm in the kingdom of God. God claims right to your body. He said, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? How can you take that and join it to somebody else? Listen, if you love the person and want to make a life together, make a covenant before God. Do it right. Mm, mm, mm. 
what persecution could not accomplish in Smyrna, Satan accomplishes the same thing through the doctrine of Balaam. And he says, go ahead and compromise. Moabite women are coming in the camp. They're really good looking and it's okay. God judged his ancient people for their sins. I don't know, 17,000 or something were killed after as a plague that got brought on them. And uh, he's no less exacting on the church today and judgment will, will come. You cannot play with fire and be burned. Now listen, if you're in that situation, we're gonna have prayer at the end. We're gonna pray, but call the office. We'll help you, we'll work with you. But there's, the, the answer is, there, there's an answer that's right and holy and just before God. And if you'll build your foundation on the Lord Jesus Christ, he has the potential to bless your marriage, bless your socks off, give you the greatest marriage and the greatest kids, and it's all a part of God's plan for our own good. I'm not trying to stamp out your fun. God has a purpose and a reason for all things. The second doctrine they had, and, oh, I gotta hurry. Second doctor, oh man, I just, I'm killing this today. It, I'm way over time, because right, I know what I got left. The second doctrine was called the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and I think that's rooted in pride. And, and so I think it's a pride issue, and pride is one of those great big idols that rears its ugly head up against us. Pride, and it comes from two words, Nicolaitan. Uh, it, it comes from the first part, Nikos, which means to rule over. Laetan or laity, you've heard the word laity, means people. So it literally means to rule over people. So what is he talking about? The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It was the idea of people having priestly authority over others. Hierarchy in the church. And you hold to this hierarchy system in the church and it simply feeds the pride of the leaders of the church. Jesus gives us the model. If you are gonna lead in the church or lead in ministry or lead in any kind of thing you set your face to do, he says, whoever would be the greatest must be the servant of all. Christ's model for leadership is always servant leadership. He takes the, the thing off of his waist and he washes their feet. And if we're really gonna be leaders in any way, shape, or form, it is through serving and loving our people, not lording it over them. Now, now, let me tell you, I, I, I didn't get, I don't have time to go into detail about possible dispensations and generations that these churches may point to. I think there's some history truth to it. I, I think when you think about the church of Smyrna, you think about the age in the church age from 64 AD to 313 AD to the reign of those 10 emperors who brought a, a incredible persecution against the church of the living God. But something happens. In 13, uh, 313 AD, Constantine is the new emperor, and he has some kind of religious experience, and he wants to merge the state with the church. And so he merges them together, but in doing so, they abandon the system that God set forth in the New Testament for how a church should operate and function. And so he has a whole hierarchy with popes and priests and only certain people who had the ability to read the word and forgive sins. Okay? This is the Nicolaitan doctrine. This is ruling over the people. 
It is not the priesthood of all the believers and all the church. Now, if I want to be forgiven, I've got to go into a priest. I've got to go in a confessional booth. I've got to talk to a man who then has the power to absolve my sins. Listen, I want to tell you, that is not biblical. That is not the biblical pattern of church government. He says in the church, I've given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers to do what? To train and equip the believers so that we can all do the work of the ministry. I'm not the hired gun. I'm not gonna come and lead your buddy to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're there to do that. I'm there to teach you and train you. Other teachers are there to teach you and train you, but it's all of us involved in ministry together. There is no one better than the other in the kingdom of God. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 18, he says, and all this is from God who reconciled himself us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So if you've been saved, if you've been reconciled to God, you have a ministry. It is the ministry of reconciliation. You're to reconcile others to the Lord Jesus Christ. Priesthood got so corrupt. They hid, they kept the word of God from the lay people, from, from people. They kept it from people. They could not read the word of God. It, it plunged the church into the dark ages. There was the buying and selling of indulgences. So if you wanted favor with God, you give enough money, you can light a candle or get a trinket or do whatever, just as long as you had to kept the money coming. And so you get a very corrupt papacy. And then a man by Martin Luther comes along and says, wait, enough and enough. There's so much corruption in the church. And he leads what we know now as the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. The Nicolaitans, you hold to this. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Any child of God can have the power of the Holy Spirit. We are all called to be his witnesses, to literally to all around the world, wherever we go, wherever God sends us. Now, the early church didn't get the message at first, so God sends a persecution in Acts 8. The church scatters, and, and people go everywhere taking the good news of Jesus Christ. And the word gets out. The only ones left in Jerusalem were the apostles. And they kept studying and teaching and training and developing. And the church went out and did the ministry. And the Bible says that the church multiplied. And the number grew so that no one could even count anymore how many were giving their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it exciting when we get to share in the work of God and we bring in the kingdom of God and we see people saved and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Persecution doesn't destroy the church. I think it only makes it stronger. I preached on that last week. I won't go over it again. But the church is weakened when it compromises. And when we start to compromise, we lose our witness. We lose our effectiveness because we're no different than the world. Why does the world want a gospel where there's fighting and disunity and bickering and strife and immorality? They're not going to be attracted to that. We lose our witness through compromise. The Lord tells Pergamos to repent. Repent literally means turn from your wicked ways and begin to do what's right. Church that tolerates evil, he says, I will come with the sword of my mouth and I will bring my punishment and I will bring my wrath. But he says there is an answer in it's repentance. And if you'll repent and turn to me, if you'll give your life over to me, if you'll hold on to my name, if you'll begin to walk in faith, if you'll serve me, there is an answer. Total victory is possible. Now, here's the good news. Satan is a defeated foe. 
I don't want to build him up too strong today because he's already been whipped on the cross. Uh, Jesus Christ won the victory. He said, it is finished and Satan is defeated. His doom is sealed. And as long as we keep our eyes on the author and finish of our faith, we also can overcome. And then he gives this word at the end. He says, to him who overcomes, I will do two things. I got to give you this. This is awesome. I will give you, first of all, the hidden manna to eat. What's the hidden manna? It's hidden in the fact that it's hidden from the rest of the world, but it's available to every single child of God. What is that hidden manna? Well, you got to go back again to manna in the Old Testament. What happened every morning the children of Israel got up? Manna's all over the ground. They're plucking it up. What's that going to do? Give them sustenance and strength they would need for that day. And they would go out the next day and get more manna. And the next day, on Friday, they would only get uh, uh, two batches of manna. they get enough for Friday and Saturday because they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. But God had the manna out there every single day. I want to take you very quickly to John chapter six. He says, I am the bread of life. I am come down from God and whoever eats of me will live. And oh my goodness. What does that mean? It means I go, I feast on the Lord every day. He is my strength. He is my helper. He's my strong tower. I talk to him. I read his word. I draw close to him. And not just once a week, every day. I got it. This is like they did the manna. Every day. Every day. I feast on the hidden manna of God. Jesus has everything we need for life and godliness. Second, he says, I'll give him a white stone. Now, this is an incredible word picture used here in the book of Revelations. When they would have a trial, they had two stones. One was black, one was white. The guy was guilty. Black stone, guilty. Take him into jail, kill him, crucify him, whatever. White stone, innocent. He said, if you keep my word, if you're faithful, if you overcome, I got a white stone for you. I will pronounce you not guilty. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am whole and pure and complete in Jesus Christ. I lack nothing else. Uh, He's given unto me a white stone, a verdict of not guilty. I should have got a black stone because I'm a wicked, sinful man. But God says, you know what? You believed in my blood. I give you a white stone, white stone. I'll put your name on it. Hallelujah. And he gives us a, a white white stone. So what did we learn from this little church at Pergamos? Got a choice to make. Am I going to be hold to his name? Am I going to be faithful? Or am I going to do what many of them begin to do in that church? They begin to compromise. They begin to identify with Caesar and begin to worship the idols and begin to get involved in immorality and they set up their own wrong ecclesiastical systems. And are we going to compromise or remain faithful? true. Keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.